2 Samuel chapter 5, starting at verse 4. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there, Shemua, Shabob, Nathan, Solomon, Ibar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, do not go straight up, but circle round behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Giza. Beautiful. So as we come uh, to the sermon today, let me pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, open our eyes open our hearts to understand who you are, to understand who your son is. Help us to realise that Jesus is the king above all kings. And I pray this in your name. Amen. A man by the name of Philip James Elliot was a Christian missionary who, in the 1950s, took a project design... took a project to Ecuador to the unreached people. Now, he was bright and academically capable, recently married and had done many, many years in ministry. With that and theological training under his belt, 
after lots of effort and prayer, he went to the Ecuadorian jungle to the Harani people to tell them about the gospel. But within a few months of meeting them, he was dead. He had been killed brutally by the tribal warriors of that village. Now, he was only 28 years old when this happened, but as far as I'm aware, he did not convert a single person. All he wanted to do was to tell the Harani people about the chosen king, the king who would give them new life, but he ended up dead in a river. So, did Jim Elliot waste his life? Well, we come to today's passage now knowing that David, last week, was sworn in to be king by the elders in Hebron. And last week we saw the demise of the previous so-called king, Ishbosheth, murdered by two Benjamites, Rechab and Barna, in his own bedroom. Now, on one hand, we have David's family growing stronger and stronger, and on the other, we have Saul's family, which is pretty much non-existent except for a boy called Mephibosheth. Now, with this all in mind, let's open our Bibles up and open up to verse 4, which says, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, this part is helpful for us as readers as it gives us a bit of a time snapshot of David's rule. First being king over Judah, seven years, and then all over Israel for additional 33, making it 40 in total. But notice where it is. It's in Jerusalem. Now, before this, David is actually still in Hebron after learning about the death of Ishbosheth, And he's been crowned king in Hebron. So... What is this Jerusalem place? Why are we going to Jerusalem? Now, for a bit of context, Jerusalem at this stage isn't actually under David, Israel, or anyone's control that's part of God's people. So, let's see what happens. Verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. Now that David is officially king, this is the first thing that David does. He marches his men to Jerusalem to attack a people called the Jebusites. Now, since the days of Moses, God has instructed his people to do many things, but one of those things is to rid the promised land of the nations that live there, whose wickedness and moral activity had got so, so bad that God could not stand it no longer. And some of those nations were the Ammonites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the ones you see on the screen, the Jebusites. And so far, Israel's had a pretty bad record against the Jebusites. Now, we see this in the start of Joshua when they actually attack them but fail. So on the screen, Joshua 15 says, Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem, and to this day, they're still there with the people of Judah. If we think about God's people, they're meant to be set apart, holy and chosen by God to be His people, live in the promised land without other nations. But what are they doing? They're living with another nation in God's promised land. They haven't been able to rid the Jebusites from God's promised land. So with David now being king and seeing the failure of those before him, let's see if David can get rid of them. But 
There seems to be a bit of formidable opposition. Continuing in verse 6. The Jebusite said to David, you are not getting here. Even the blind, <clears throat> even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Now, other than the Joshua reference, we actually see that there's a 2-0 victory record uh, for the Jebusites. So, with a confident and fierce mock, they mock David. Now, if you see the mocking here, it's actually very reminiscent of the way Goliath mocked him in 1 Samuel. Goliath despised him on three things. His youth, his defences, but more importantly, his trust in God. His trust in the God that saves. So, we're not surprised that David, again, has an unlikely victory. Verse 7. David captured the fortress Zion, which is called the city of David. Now, once again, what, what for David seemed unlikely has come about. Even with the mocking, and even with the situation at hand, David is victorious. Well, how did he do it? Verse 8. On that day, on that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. And that is why they say, the blind and lame will not enter the palace. It so happens that a group of archaeologists <clears throat> have identified that very water shaft that David's referring to. Now, not only was this a piece of ancient engineering, ancient engineering genius, but it was used to store water, use the water, and distribute the water when the city was in siege. Now, that's not actually a live-action photo of David going through the water tunnel, but I just thought I'd make that clear. And to top it off, even the same language is used to mock the Jebusites. Let's have a look at comparison between verse 6 and verse 8. Verse 6 says, even the blind and lame can ward you off. That's the Jebusites. And then David says, use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. Now, the lame and blind, so to speak, are now the Jebusites. And for David and his men who have conquered them, it makes it worse for this conquered nation that it's actually a saying among God's people that they have been defeated. And so once the blind and lame are out of Jerusalem... David takes up residency and calls it the Fortress of Zion. Now, we're meant to see here that David and Saul are very, very different people. Saul, chosen by God's king, the king who, uh, chosen by God's people, the king who was hiding behind the boxes, failed to defeat many enemies of God that God had commanded him to do. And where did Saul end up? On the top of a mountain, dead on his own spear. But, David, chosen by God's own heart, has now succeeded to the shock and horror of his enemies. So we continue in verse 10. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. The Lord God Almighty is with David. Now, with our Old Testament glasses on, we can see that this is likely the reign of David so far. Remember in Genesis 3, what did God promise? God promised that a special person would strike the head of a serpent, one who would bring about man's deliverance and Satan's destruction. And so far, David has a pretty good scorecard. On his potential promised king scorecard, 
He's ticking lots of boxes. He's conquered enemy people. His family line has success. And he has God with him. That's the most important one. He has the God Almighty with him. Is this the promise from Genesis 3 getting fulfilled? Is this promise going to be fulfilled through David and his king line? Has the promise been fulfilled? He gets an A+. Has this promise been fulfilled? Well, let's continue in verse 13. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Now these are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Haphia, Elishama, Eliada, and Elephalet. Always thought these would be good kids' names. Um, I know you guys have lots of kids here. Um, so maybe Elephalet or Elishama, who knows. But throughout the book of 2 Samuel, uh, so far we've seen significant emphasis on two things. The names of people and the places where they are. Now, from my English experience at school, uh, normally when we see an author mention something repeatedly, we're meant to have a look at it, and we're meant to see what idea is actually being said. So, in, if you have a look in your Bibles, in 2 Samuel chapter 3, we looked at a week or two ago, there's a whole list of names mentioned. And I'm not going to read them out, but specifically, they're all from the line of David, And as we just said with Genesis 3, there's a promise for someone to come and strike the serpent. And in this continuing battle of Saul and David's family, David is the one through whom God is going to bless his people. And Saul's family is not. And remember back Genesis 15, Abraham, the patriarch of God's people, is promised what? He's promised a nation so numerous that the stars in the sky and they can't be counted. And what do we see in verse 13? David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. David is multiplying his kingdom through family and descendants. Does this fulfill the Abrahamic promise? Well, with the ever-increasing family and descendants brought by David and his kingdom, there's a bit of worry in the nations around him. The success of a newly established king is bringing about a new era in Israel. And in the second half of the chapter, we're going to meet two different people, and specifically their response to God's kingdom and David. So let's have a look at the first response. The first response is a guy called Haram. Oh, there's the Genesis 15 reference. So Haram, let's have a look at Haram. Now Haram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs, carpenters, and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Now, upon seeing the rise of David, the king of Tyre has reached out and providing with materials and labourers for the palace to be built for David. Now, acting as kind of like a treaty, King Haram knows that it's important to have David on his friend's side rather than his enemy. And this, in this instance, is actually used to assist God's people And so far, this is the first foreign king to interact with David. The first foreign king to interact in Jerusalem and Hebron. 
So if we think back to the Genesis 15 reference, King David's blessing is now not only seen within Israel, but it's seen externally of Israel too. Now, David was definitely right to see that the Lord had blessed him, and particularly because of the king of Tyre. But this brings about the Abrahamic promise that we're just talking about. The blessing of God's people is coming out to the nations, and this is going to happen over time. But also see here that David's success is not of his own doing. And over the past few weeks, we've seen lots of crazy things happen, with two family lines heading head to head. But with both sides suffering big losses, this is where we are now. It wasn't because of this family feud that David's king. It wasn't because of Haram offering materials and stuff. That's not why David's king. It wasn't because of Rechab and Barna last week. It wasn't because Ishbosheth is now dead. Rather, it was because of who? The Lord had established him. The Lord had established him king over Israel. And David's kingdom here wasn't for himself either. It was for the sake of God's people, a people who are made by God for himself. And this is what Israel was meant to be. Now, on the opposite of King Haram, we meet the Philistines. And the Philistines do not approve of David's kingship. So continuing from verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord God answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went out to Baal-perazim and defeated them there. He said, As the waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies. So that place was called Baal-perazim. So David went, to, went and the Philistines abandoned their idols there. And David and his men carried them off. The Philistines, unlike the king of Tyre, see the reuniting of Israel as a big threat. And after they've heard about the Jebusite conquering and the newly established fortress at Jerusalem, I think they're actually bound to be scared and frightened, wondering if the same thing that happened to the Jebusites is about to happen to them. But what differs in their response here to the king of Haram is many things. But instead of recognising and respecting the authority of God's chosen king, they oppose it. They oppose the one who God has appointed over his people. And, as we've seen in the book of 2 Samuel so far, appointing, uh, opposing, opposing the appointed king does not end well for you at all. And we see what happens in verse 19. The Lord will deliver the Philistines into David's hands. But notice here that it actually isn't straight away that it fully occurs. The Philistines have left their idols and David and his men have dealt with them, but the people still aren't defeated. The people are not dispersed nor destroyed, but we actually find out that they're still in the area. So let's continue on in verse 22. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord and he answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them 
and attack them from in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Giza. Now, over a 30-kilometre radius here, the Philistine army is struck down. But it's only the second time that they come into the valley are they actually truly delivered into the hands of David by God. And we can actually see, if you have a look in your Bibles, from verse 17 and 18 and verse 22 and 23, they try the same thing again, even with their gods and idols now taken by David. The second time, the Lord gives David specific instructions, and it does come to pass, with the Philistines delivered into his hand. Now, the Philistines here are being held, held responsible for their opposition against God's king and God's kingdom, just like we saw with the Jebusites. And this is all happening because David obeys and trusts in the plans that God has given him. Fulfilling what was said in, back in chapter 3 by Abner, Abner said, God's servant David has freed and saved his people from the Philistines. Unlike those before him, David is fulfilling what God has said. He doesn't act out of self-interest. He doesn't attack. He doesn't deceive other people. But what does he do? He waits on God's timing. So, what's some implications for us? Well, victory for God's people Israel has come about. And it's finally come about through the reign of David. With God's enemies defeated, both the Jebusites and the Philistines, this is a new era for God's people. David, unlike those before him, has carried out his duty and brought safety and stability to Israel. This is a sign of a united Israel under a king who actually desires God's will and wellness for his own people. Despite the circumstances that David has been given, he's victorious. And there is victory for God's people, Israel. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see how this plays out. But where does it hit the road for us? Well, there is a reality that God's king is established, and that here is David. No matter the dreams and schemes of the people around him, David is always destined to come to this point. And God's king here is going to reign no matter what. And that just means, just like the Philistines just like Haram, with our king, we are either on board, we are on board with the kingdom and its kingship, or we're in opposition. Now, did Jim Elliot waste his life? Not at all. It is inevitable that Jesus will return and his kingdom will be permanently established. Now, it's only a matter of time before the Harani people, and all people for that fact, will bow their knees and will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, there's two options. Those who choose to serve the king, what do they get? Eternal life. Those who don't serve the king, what do they get? Separation from God for eternity. And now that's not only a reality for the Harani people, like I said, but it's a case for all people, for all of us. Now, opposition here on earth for God's plan is always going to happen. But no matter how unlikely it seems, no matter how long it takes, the reality that must be not ignored is 
the chosen King Jesus will undoubtedly be victorious no matter the circumstances. Defeating death on a wooden Roman cross, he was mocked, scorned and shamed by people who did not expect any victory at all. But winning over all the powers of evil, he fought the war of sin and death, resurrecting to new life where victory was claimed. And his kingdom is permanently established. The proclaimed son of God who is reigning at the right hand of the father right now. And on account of this rule for eternity over all people and all things, how much more should this spur us on to be Christians? How much more should this spur us on to live for Jesus in all we do? Now, Jim Elliot sacrificed his comforts to ensure that God's kingdom and gospel would be heard by the nations. So, knowing that Jesus will return and that he is undoubtedly victorious no matter what, no matter the circumstances, what do we do? Well, continue to come to church. Continue to meet with your fellow brothers and sisters. Prioritise coming and meeting with them. Support the gospel work through prayer, giving. And in our relative security and peace here in Australia, operate in a mindset that Christ's work will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come before you as broken people people from all backgrounds and situations. Help us to recognise the king that you have placed above us, trusting in your plans and purposes. Work in our hearts to spur us on, to continue to proclaim your message to the world that so badly needs you. By your spirit, enable people to not only recognise, but repent and completely trust in the work of your son at the cross. And... It's in his name that we all pray. Amen.